when we see like strong deals, you still see a lot of investor interest. Everyone is taking a bit longer to decide, which I think is healthy for the market. So it normalized much more versus the 21 days where a lot of funds had to decide within a matter of days in order to win a competitive deal. But I think the strong founders, strong business models, there will always be funding for them. AI will not give rise to completely new platforms. So we don't think that a platform which was started pre-AI, now the entire business model will be disrupted. We rather think that AI will be embedded into these platforms which already have customers to make the workflows more efficient. I would promote a more hypothesis-driven investment approach. What I see very often is that investments are looked at very opportunistically. The more time I get to evaluate, the better. Versus if you spend more time before building strong hypotheses, looking for the right match, and then you have a much more conviction-driven investment. Welcome to the Platform Pioneers, a show about the bright minds behind the world's largest digital platforms and the stories of how they built them. I am your host, Kuros, and together we'll uncover the secrets behind creating, scaling, and managing some of the most successful platforms out there. Welcome back to the Platform Pioneers podcast. Today, I'm really thrilled that we're joined by Florian Reichert, his partner managing director at Picos Capital. Picos is an early-stage tech investor with more than 200 investments made over the past eight years. Their portfolio includes companies like Personio, Enpal, and Billy. Prior to Picos, Florian worked um, at BCG and graduated from St. Gallen. Florian, maybe could you please introduce yourself a bit and tell us a bit about Picos Capital and what your um, investment philosophy is, specifically when it comes to early-stage VCs. Sure. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And maybe to start briefly with a short intro on myself, as, as you already mentioned, having a finance and consulting background before moving into VC, actually always were deciding for myself between going on the investment side and starting up myself. So during my studies, uh, first years of working, always discussed different type of ideas to start my own business uh, together with also Robin, who is a colleague of mine now at Picos and one of the founding partners here. But then ultimately you know, decided to to join Picos early on. Um, actually, on the one hand, because it combined the interesting investing side plus the entrepreneurial journey for me, actually, because you know when I joined Picos, we were three people. By now, we are 50. So it's really about building Picos into a global, as we always call this, technology holding. And so we have big ambitions for Picos and see it as our, as our own venture. So as in a sense, our own entrepreneurial journey. And on the other hand, and that brings also brings me to the point which you which you ask as well, which is essentially what makes us which makes our philosophy different from other investors, is that the way we work together with founders is extremely entrepreneurial. Because one of our guiding principles is that we always say for us there is no too early to partner with entrepreneurs. So actually we ideally partner with founders in a stage where they just you know just left their job or maybe are still in their old jobs but are thinking about starting up, thinking about starting something new, maybe already have a concrete model, maybe already only a, a concrete space or nothing at all. And we actually want to act like this entrepreneurial sparring partner from, from day zero. And when I talk about entrepreneurial sparring partner, this means you know sharing our hypotheses on different spaces, sharing our expertise that we've built up with our with our global global team and global you know exposure that we have to to different markets. And then go in a very active collaboration mode where we actually, you know, build hypothesis jointly by doing exploration calls with potential customers together by obviously having strategy sessions, operational sessions in order to to refine models, refine go-to markets, etc. And I think that on the one hand allows us to prove our value add to founders already 
you know, from early on before we actually invest. I think last year alone, we brought in more than 100 design partners to our to founders in that early stage and more than 40 people, um, you know, on a, on a very senior level into, into those teams. And then ultimately with that, with that um, approach of proving our value early, hope to be the partner of choice when it comes to, to a potential, potential financing route. And secondly, it allows us to, in our view, make better investment decisions because we, we are really able to build a strong hypothesis on a space over a period of multiple weeks but also build a strong hypothesis on on the founders on the teams which i think ultimately makes us a a great partner because you know if things don't go as planned if if uh, you know if you know there's some hiccups in the business we don't lose conviction because we actually were in that process together with the founders by building that um, you know strong conviction strong hypothesis on the space which i think as i said allows us to keep conviction even if things don't go as planned plus I think allows us to have much deeper conversations and much higher value at in strategic and operational discussions uh, with the with the teams. So I think that's a bit of a special approach to how we look at early stage investing. And and is that something? I mean, we are right now uh, when when this is recorded in uh, still in a bit of a, of a special situation. I would say when it comes to funding environment, these these big heydays of 2021 are over. Has these kind of like um, more cautious approach of investors. Has it changed anything on, on, on how you approach um, investments, how early you go in, what kind of investments uh, you do? I think for us, for our investment approach, it actually didn't change too much because, you know, as you know, uh, as I mentioned before, we always had the ambition to go in as early as possible with a very strong conviction on topic and, and thesis, which for us is we look at a period of like, you know, 10 years plus. So for us, a market hiccup of two or three years doesn't definitely doesn't change the type of conviction that we have on models. And we've always been focusing on models which, you know, are fundamentally strong from the very early days, meaning we we, we didn't like to invest previously in, in businesses which require a very, very large scale to then start thinking about monetization. Obviously, you'll always have levers to improve unit economics, but the visibility into strong unit economics for us always needs to be there from the from the very early days. So that's why for in terms of appetites of investments we do, it didn't change too much because we're always asking ourselves, hey, is that, a, especially in the B2B context, is that level one spend, which you don't cut out in a recession? Under that, I would, for example, count an HR system like Personio. You never cut it out independent of how worst uh, how bad the economic situation is but this also applies to for example you know payment companies which you need to do business so i think that has always been a guiding principle for us is that a level one spend which is not cut out in in recession times so i think that's why for our investment approach it didn't change too much however when it comes to portfolio management i think we you need to start thinking differently about what are the KPIs you are optimizing your business for, right? Because, you know, getting additional capital into companies in order to grow further, you know, the follow-on investors, the growth investors start to look at not just top-line growth. And that was the number one metric which you which you could observe in like 21, which was the guiding, you know, guiding metric for every investor. I think now this is much more balanced between, obviously, on the one hand, you need to show growth, but I think the steepness of the growth curve is a bit less important. And now... Um, metrics around efficiency and, and profitability metrics and, and unit economics are becoming much more top of mind for, for later stage investors. And investors are taking much more time to understand these metrics, understand how these metrics will be developed after this next, after the finance rolling round, after they put in more money, which I think from a portfolio management point of view, it has an impact on 
how to actually steer the business together with the founders and um, you know often very like optimize not just optimize on pace but rather optimize on efficiency and, and and being less dependent on the financing market because it's just much harder to to plan but i think if you think about funding appetite in the market obviously the number of deals that are being done also reduced significantly however what we see is there's still capital out there to be deployed um, you know a lot of funds have have uh, full pockets however everyone is thinking in much longer deployment horizons so i think two three years ago since funds were deployed in one or two years now everyone is thinking more three to four years but when we see like strong deals and hot deals and interesting deals, you still see a lot of investor interest. I think everyone is taking a bit longer to decide, which I think is healthy for the market. So it normalized much more versus the 21 days where a lot of funds, you know, had to decide within a matter of days in order to win a deal, a competitive deal. So this has, I think, normalized now. But I think the strong founders, strong business models will always be there, there will always be funding for them. Interesting, and, and maybe that's a good a good inflection point to to switch to digital platforms because that is one of the business model where you can actually scale way faster than kind of having having a business model where you take, for example, all of the risk and assume the risk um, yourself. When you look at digital platforms, marketplaces, which is just a subform of platforms, like what are the big trends that you see from an from an investor lens? How that market is going to evolve? Yeah, so I think we're seeing. I would say I would actually see two trends. I think on the, the one is more commerce shifting to platforms. And that I would say, especially in the B2B context, where we see a lot of transactions which happened one-to-one, on, one -one, happened offline, moving to platforms, like, for example, marketplaces. You know, We see that around chemistry supply chain. We see that in sustainable packaging supply chain, et cetera, you name it. So I think a lot of the commerce is actually shifting to platforms. I think that's one larger trend, which is an obvious one. And the second trend, which I think is a very interesting one, is a lot of platforms that have customers and that manage processes, like, for example, um, an invoicing platform, if you want to take that as an example, are thinking about how can I actually monetize my customers more? And that often means, you know, getting the actual transaction on the platform or adding additional services they can monetize on these platforms. So I think the... Uh, given and that also has to do with the funding environment, right? Where obviously it's uh, the the unit economics are becoming much increasingly more important, and a lot of business models only function with um, if they improve unit economics. And I think a very good example for that is, for example, a lot of the POS systems which go after barber shops and these small restaurants and so on, right? Where in Europe we've always seen compared to the US much more expensive customer acquisitions. So from a unit economics perspective, it It, it didn't work out as well as in the U.S. because in the U.S. you have much more larger chains. So if you sign up on customer, your ACV automatically is significantly bigger. So these customers, uh, these platforms need to think about how can we actually monetize, monetize our end users better. And a lot of that comes down to getting the actual transaction on the platform and not just a SaaS monetization. And maybe maybe looking at these um, kind of kind of platforms and, and emergent trends, we've seen. I mean, we, we've been in the last two three years in in a lot of um, change environment. There was COVID. There's a post-COVID world uh, where digital adoption probably has accelerated. There's a huge AI boom. How do you see these mega trends reflecting on platforms and marketplaces? So I think I think these are two 
trends which we need to treat, treat very, very differently. I think when it comes to COVID, I think it allowed us to, I think to skip a couple of years in terms of digital adoption, especially on the B2B side, I would say, because it forced a lot of businesses to adopt to more digital solutions and do more, to, you, know, you know, more of their business on, on digital platforms. So I think it helped them jump a couple of years in terms of adoption. However, I don't think that this in radically increases the continuous adoption after COVID. I think this was a jump, but now I think it's, you know, it's a bit behind us. We, and it's, it's back to like the normal development of, you know, how businesses will adopt digital solutions. I think that's one. On the AI side of things, we actually are having a lot of discussions around this internally, where on the one hand, obviously you have the big foundational, the big, like the, 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 the deepest level of, of AI, I would say, which are the foundational models, where there's obviously a lot of innovation, a lot of new players emerging these, these days. Then you have a bit the transmission layer, which allows, and that's, I think, the interesting part for platforms, the application layer to deploy AI solutions within their, within their businesses. And there, our clear philosophy is that AI will not give rise to completely new platforms. Um, so we don't think that a platform which was founded, which was started pre-AI, now it was just AI, the entire business model will be disrupted. We rather think that AI will be embedded into these platforms which already have customers to to make the workflows you know, more efficient and make their product ultimately better. But we, I don't think that on the platform level, AI will have such a potential that it will disrupt every business model, every platform out there. There will be maybe some instances where it gives rise for a completely new business model, but we rather have the hypothesis that AI will make the already existing platforms better. And and kind of like like speaking of existing platforms, new platforms, how do you feel about um, which are the, the verticals most underserved when, when it comes to a platform perspective, right? I mean, uh, something that we have, have seen and, and also discussed in the series is a lot of, hey, there, there has been an underserved or, or being early on the curve when it comes to B2B marketplaces for specific verticals, waste and uh, metal, etc. Like, like, what is your view on, on underserved verticals when it comes to digital platforms? Yeah, so I think that's actually a very good point you're mentioning. Um, I already mentioned two examples earlier where on the B2B marketplace side of things, we see very vertical focus plays in industries which have historically been, I would say, very manual and offline, where I think COVID definitely gave them a bump and speed up in terms of digital adoption. And you mentioned already construction material, chemicals, packaging, etc. So we definitely see a lot happening on that side. And there's, you know, across the globe, we see we see an emergence of these. And for a lot of these, we see very global plays actually emerging because the supply chains are so close of these marketplaces, right? It's not this consumer fashion marketplace where you buy from the retailer, which is around your corner. These are really global supply chains, which are now being brought digital and being brought on these B2B platforms, which obviously brings a whole new set of challenges and opportunities for marketplace infrastructure because it, it requires for global logistics, including tax, customs, etc. A lot of these goods are uh, goods which you can't just ship via a package in DHL because you have certain requirements in custom and duties and everything. So it brings a whole new set of complexity there. However, also around payments, where obviously FX now is starting to play a much more important role than it is that it played historically in consumer marketplaces. So I think that's that's one one trend we've seen or we are seeing. And but the same also for platforms which which are not necessarily marketplace but rather uh, software platforms which also have much more of a vertical focus these days. And I think there we see two things, which is one vertical one fo vertical focus is really going also into 
industries which haven't been tackled for uh, before. We're seeing vertical plays in medtech. We're seeing vertical plays in pharma, which are obviously you know, very tough uh, customers to acquire. But obviously, once you are in, there's a whole lot potential as a platform what you can do, right? You can cover uh, them very end-to-end, the entire vertical. Plus, going after verticals which are emerging at the moment. For example, in the US, I think this entire Metzva space is a super and small health clinics, right? This is something which is just coming up. You know, there's crazy growth numbers in there. You know, these are the small plastic surgery uh, type of outlets which don't actually require any form of license or so to operate. So these is Botox clinics and all these kind of things where we see a whole new set of software players actually emerging to target those and to make those more efficient. Um, so I think that's another trend we see around platforms emerging. It's interesting when you look at kind of um, the future, future challenges, specifically for founders uh, of digital platforms and success criteria that, that you are looking into. What are these big challenges that, that lie ahead and that, that you are looking into when looking into investment, for example, into digital platform? Yeah, I think these days it's very rare that if a founder starts a new company, there's really a, a, a vertical a founder can focus on where there's a complete white space in terms of digital platform. I think all if, if every, all the opportunities we look at these days, there's already some form of platform being used by the customers. This might be a more horizontal play, which is not really um, dedicated to a certain vertical, which offers a lot of potential. But this also might be obviously an outdated technology, which will have hard times to adopt. For example, uh, you know, new technology like AI because their code base is, base is so so old and. For every customer, they have a different type of, uh, they have a different code base ultimately. So I think the, uh, having said that, I think the ultimate wedge into the customers, which already are users of some form of platform, will will be a will be the major challenge of every founder in the very early days. So you need to find a wedge in a certain use case of a customer where you can start, maybe sitting on top of, let's say, for example, the current ERP system or the current treasury system or the current procurement system. And from there, start with a certain use case and have a very clear roadmap of how do I actually replace bit by bit the current systems in order to get more and more share of the entire pie. And that's that's what I think makes vertical plays so, so interesting because I think for vertical plays, a lot of them have been served with more horizontal platforms where there are a lot of shortcomings to very specific use cases, which often offers an easy way in. Maybe easy is the wrong word, but a, a a a clear way in, which allows you to set foot, work with the customers, and f- expand from there. So I think this is one of the challenges founders of platform business models face today versus maybe ten years ago, where there was much more white space in every in every customer. And and what is like in that respect, where, where it's now a bit more difficult, more white space? Like, what is a common mistake you could make as a founder? Like, uh, and where 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 do you have to be really? really careful when when wanting to wanting to to get into a space i think that comes down to one of the points i mentioned in the very beginning how we assess business models is like how is your spend in a business customer that's in in that um, aspect classified if let's say you sell a certain initial product into a customer is this being kicked out in the next recession and that shows how much value you actually generate with your first product. I think a lot of mistakes we are seeing is that founders are selling a very light, thin product without enough value creation to a customer. They maybe have an easy in because it's a low ACV, it doesn't need to go through procurement. They have one fan in the organization which is using it. 
However, I would from the from from day one, I would um, you know assess what's actually the engagement within the firm with it, with my product. Is this just one guy which likes it and is a big fan, or am I able to from this entry point really capture a broader audience and user base into the in the organization, which obviously allows you then to expand your product product offering much better because you know the organization is familiar with your product, from uh, the organization is experiencing how well you are serving this first use case. And that makes it much easier for you to develop your value proposition further. So summing it up, going in with too thin of a value proposition um, and being maybe a bit blinded by an easy customer acquisition with that, but not having in mind on how to actually expand from there and, and, and capturing a larger part of the, of the pie. Interesting. And, and maybe exactly that, like, like how do you catch a larger pie, larger part of the pie? How do you actually monetize it? There's something that a lot of platforms and marketplaces obviously are always struggling with like, how do you get, how do you increase the total addressable market? How, how do you get more value, value creation from the customer? And obviously what a lot of um, platform, vertical platforms have been looking at was um, how can I embed fintech? How can I embed financial services, payments, banking services, etc.? What is your take how the current state and the involvement of this is going to be in the next five years, maybe kind of as a, as a wrap-up question? No, I think that's actually a very big trend we are underwriting um, because we really believe in the power that platforms have because they have such a rich user base. They have, you know, they, they have gotten to a point where they're so sticky with the customers that they would not replace, they don't replace it for something else. Meaning that gives a lot of potential to capture much more of the value chain. And fintech, I think, is a very, very good way to do that because fintech is something where it's for financial services providers, in a sense, I think often very hard to differentiate. Uh, taking one example, if I'm now a marketplace, right, and um, I am, I'm now this buyer on a marketplace and the marketplace, and historically, I've been getting my working capital financing from Bank X in Germany. All I'm looking for is what rate do they offer to me? I don't have this, you know, the relationship is typically not that deep. I optimize purely for the rate. That makes it very easier, easy for the marketplace to actually offer that service to me directly and capture part of that value chain if they are able to at least you know, closely match the rate. Because you know, for me, it's different if I get the money from point A or from point B. I rather care about the convenience in the process, which the marketplace can very, very clearly offer. And second of all, I, you know, I need to, obviously they need to be, from a rate perspective, they need to be competitive. But I think that illustrates very well how fintech is actually something which makes makes platforms capture much more of the value chain. I think what we underwrite mainly there is actually the infrastructure empowering that. So the infrastructure allowing marketplaces and platforms to offer these financial services to their end customers. On the one hand, to capture more, capture more, reven more revenue. On the other hand, to have a better proposition because I think another good example is when it comes to onboarding of marketplaces, right? Uh, of, of sellers on marketplaces. It's you are, the marketplace already has a vast amount of data on the, on the seller. The marketplace doesn't want to have the seller leave the platform when they register. Or making all that possible with an infrastructure solution is something we are extremely excited about, as an example. I mean, great. And, and, and a great uh, wrap-up to this. Uh, we are almost at the end. So we always have um, a couple of... Um, non-content round of question and maybe um, in this instance as we are as we are almost on uh, on time just one question looking at kind of like the entire topic that we discussed if you could 
change one thing about the current state of the VC industry, you know, regardless of how controversial, disruptive, etc. What would it be and how would you change it? I think um, one thing I would change, I would try to promote more because I think there is already a part of the market doing that, is a more hypothesis-driven investment approach. I think what, we, what I see very, very frequently and very often is that investments are looked at very opportunistically and you know everyone optimizes in the sense of let me see more the more time i get to evaluate the better versus if you spend more time before building strong hypothesis looking for the right match and then you can you know have a much more conviction driven investment and it's for you it doesn't matter if it's companies at 100k or 300k ar because you as a us investor have such a strong conviction on the space you validate it that you know you see the opportunity you want to leverage it I think that is something which you know we are very actively fostering here at Pickles and we are, have always been working very hypothesis driven, which I think is a very good investment approach, which I would like to see much more across different markets. I think it's to some extent already there, but I think it's a um, it's, it's something which should be and hopefully will be done, will be done more. Perfect. Flo, I mean, it was amazing to have you here. Great insights, specifically on that very complex topic of digital platforms uh, and marketplaces um, and, and how the entire future is going to look like. Thank you so much for joining. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great to be part of this format and I'll be happy to join again.